Hello, folks. Welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into this week's show, I want to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It has nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike, or run, but it has got everything to do with your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, your work habits, and so much more. If these are areas you'd like to improve on, we would love to help you. I currently have ability to take on a couple of clients, and my wife, Beth, who is a certified life coach, has some availability as well. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered, and you can find contact details in the show notes below. Let's move on to today's show, which is a two-parter featuring ultra running coach, Jason Coop. So if ultra running is something you're interested to have a go at in the future, this is a podcast for you. Before that, here's a question. Is ultra running the latest must-do sport for endurance junkies? Jason certainly thinks we'll see more and more triathletes coming into the ultra running space because, as he says, it's a lot cooler and because of the recently announced partnership between Ironman and the folks who present the UTMB series. That's Ultra Trail Mont Blanc for the uninitiated. Jason's one of the leading ultra running coaches and he's also author of the book Training Essentials for Ultra Running. He actually started out as a triathlon and cycle coach about 20 years ago and gradually became more focused on coaching ultra runners. Back in 2004, there was little scientific research about the demands of the sport. In fact, there were just six research papers and there were no books. So Jason did what all good coaches do. He went and observed. In Jason's words, I strive to bring the best out of each athlete using a combination of science-based practice, intuition forged through decades of experience and relentless care for the athletes as an individual. So if you've got ambitions to take on the Ultra Marathon Challenge, then I know you're going to enjoy this conversation as we discuss training strategies, kit requirements, nutrition and mindset. This is definitely another one of those chats where you'll need a pen and paper to take notes. So please get ready and let's get chatting with Jason. Oh, great pleasure to have Jason Cooper on the show. Welcome, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. No, well, the pleasure's all mine. I have had several requests for me to get somebody on to talk about ultra running and several of my guests, Gordo Byrne, what being one who I spoke to most recently, have, uh, have spoken very highly of you. And um, as we have quite a few triathletes that have, have asked me about ultra running events, um, I thought, why not go to the man at the top, the man who's written the book. Um, the book I have here, look, I'll, sh- I'll show it on the screen for those who might get to see the video and we'll definitely share a link to that. So I uh, appreciate you being here. And I'm going to pick your brains now, so that if ever I want to do an ultra run, I know what I'm letting myself in for. I'm 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 game. You know, we're going to start to see more and more uh, triathletes come into the ultra running space because first off, it's cooler. Like let's just let's just like get that out of the way right from the get go. I I have been known to give triathletes a lot of grief, so hopefully your uh, audience will not hold that uh, hold that against me. But from a from a practical point of view, um, there's been a very a very big partnership uh, that has just been struck in the ultra running world with uh, Ironman, where they have mm-hmm. a strategic partnership with the kind of the biggest trail running organization in the world uh, in the UTMB series. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's going to bring a lot of overall attention to the sport, where you see just more athletes come into it in general, as we've been seeing over the course of the past several years. But we're also going to see triathletes kind of come into the uh, of this into the sport as well, because specifically through that channel, now they're going to have exposure to 
you know, a new sport mm-hmm. and how neat it is and, you know, some of the beautiful places it can take you and stuff like that. So yeah, it's good. And it's, it, it continues to grow. Well, I um, have quite a few friends that I uh, do gravel riding with and who I go skiing with who are what you would know in the, what would be known in the UK as fell runners. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the names uh, of the guys who are uh, at the top of the game here. You might be familiar with the book Feet in the Clouds. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so one of the guys that gets mentioned frequently there is a guy called Ian Holmes. So Ian's still running. Um, he's he's won a lot of the top fell races in um, in the UK and some in Europe. And uh, so that that's always an interesting juxtaposition there of fell running versus trail running because there are most of the fell runs I know just go up to the top of the local and back down and finish at a pub. But there are some of the races in the Lake District that, um, like the Borrowdale 30, which are quite long and I suppose could fall under the category of an ultra trail run. Yeah, and it's a very specific skill set. You know, there have been a number of very good, what I would call classic trail runners that have gone over into that fell running scene and been com- just complete, like uh, just completely overwhelmed with how different mm-hmm. it is as compared to a, a traditional trail race. So it's a very, very cool scene that you guys have over there, uh, over there in the UK and something that's all honestly a very specific, it's, it's a very specific discipline of trail running and a very specific mm-hmm. discipline of even ultra running for the, for the ones that are a longer distance. You said that you like to have a little dig at triathletes. We should get that out of the way now. Cause I, I did a pod, <laughs> I did a podcast with um, Andy Peace, who is also a really good, uh, cyclocross rider gravel rider he he actually holds the record for the yorkshire dales three peaks run still 25 years on and he held the 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 bike ride as well um i think he's only one of two people who've done done that both rob jebsey the guy i think you might know of rob Mm -hmm. um but when i when i was talking to andy on the podcast we were talking about the differences that i'd noticed between the fell runners and the triathletes the fell runners are really laid back they they ride to their events they don't have much kit. They finish the events in a pub. They have a couple of beers. They go home. They don't really have all the geek, geeky stuff. They're not worried about heart rate. They just enjoy the running. Um, yeah, and you know the the my fundamental jab that I will consistently take at triathletes is is they are first innovators to a fault. They're always the first to adopt whatever piece of technology or nutrition trick or training intervention or kind of whatever it is. And some of that has served them, you know, very well, you know, going back to the arrow bars, right. Going back into the, into the eighties, but then other times you just have to roll your eyes and just go, listen, you, you guys are chasing the very smallest of minimal of fractions of a gain here for something that is kind of immaterial, uh, to, uh, to the outcome. So I've always appreciated the triathletes' willingness to be at the forefront of adopting all of these new things, but at times it gets kind of comical, and sometimes it can actually be a lot of athletes' kind of downfall. They they're chasing around quite literally the wrong things in 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 training and in racing. So I was talking with a guy on a podcast earlier this week. He'd just been to Hamburg and run sub eight hours, and he said at times he had to ignore his heart rate monitor and ignore his power meter and just go with the flow. And that made me think of a gentleman called Pauli Kuru from the 90s. He was from Finland, and so he was sponsored by Polar. And this was around the time that heart rate monitors were making a, sort of a common entrance into endurance sports. And he was leading in Hawaii, beating Mark Allen, but his heart rate monitor and his heart was telling him that he was actually going too fast 
although he felt pretty good. So he slowed down and he lost the race because he listened to the tech and not his body. And Mark Allen says if he, if he just carried on running how he was, he'd have beat me. I'd have never caught him. Um, and that to me is an, a, a supreme example of um, not listening to your body and letting the tech do the talking and making a mistake. Yep. Yep. And I'd say uh, sports are, especially in the endurance sports, are kind of littered with a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Do you not, do you not find that in trail running then? Well, this is one of the cornerstones of the coaching strategy that I typically deploy. You know, if, if we kind of rewind a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've been coaching for a very long time, over 25 years now. And um, originally, I was a cycling and a triathlon coach. And that's because there was no market for trail and ultra running, despite my best efforts. And, um, you know, I started coaching in the kind of the very early 2000s, where the cycling power meter revolution was really starting to was really starting to take off in the commercial space. We'd use them with elite athletes for, you know, a number of years. But the portability and the accessibility and the price points, and also the, the just the function, just dramatically changed from you know, in, in, in a few very short years. And the coaches in the space, we went from predominantly using heart rate monitors to prescribe intensity to predominantly using power meters to prescribe intensity. And to make a long story short, we all kind of looked like idiots because we now had this better surrogate for how to actually prescribe and analyze intensity on the bike. And it completely revealed all of the, well, it didn't, it didn't just reveal, it actually magnified all the flaws that we knew were abundant within using heart rate to describe intensity, cardiac drift, and you have different heart rate on different days and even drift within an interval and, you know, a whole, just a whole range of things. The power meter kind of completely exposed this. And so when I started to work with with ultra runners, one of the fundamental things that I had to decide for myself as a coach is how am I going to prescribe intensity? I can't prescribe it by pace because we're running on, you know, varying ups and downs and train changes and it gets technical and non-technical and things like that. And so the two kind of left over are heart rate or rating of perceived exertion. And that experience of moving from using heart rate to using a power meter uh, on the bike greatly influenced my decision to almost, I wouldn't say exclusively, but almost exclusively using rating of perceived exertion to describe the intensity component of training for, uh, for trail and ultra runners. Now there's a whole host of reasons that I, that, that I continue to do that as well. It's not just the fact that heart rate has all of these, you know, kind of flaws associated with it. But it was a very deliberate part of the kind of the coaching philosophy that, you know, that I adopted, uh, you know, a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. And it was not without, it was not without consternation from the community. I got a a lot of criticism uh, at that time for kind of shunning uh, heart heart rate based intensity prescription. And now here it comes, you know, we've even got more tools to kind of analyze what's going on. Uh, from a from a physiological from a physiological perspective, but more specifically from a heart rate perspective, and everybody's kind of come around to the fact that, like, listen, if you're running over three hours, you can only use heart rate to a certain degree to gauge intensity. It's a very it's a, it's a very coarse measurement, um, and if you're trying to apply it um, in any sort of narrow fashion to dial down intensity, you got to you've got to realize that there's a whole other host of things that are going on at the same time that are probably obscuring 
what you are actually trying to do. Yeah, I have noticed, particularly having observed and coached and raced in Hawaii, that um, power almost becomes redundant there as well because of the influence of the heat and humidity. You know, I've I've seen people trying to hit a power that they do when they're in Europe yeah. in temperate conditions. And then they're coming out of 26 degree water, having probably swum harder than they would do in a wetsuit. And it's the world championship. So there's a, there's the adrenaline flowing and they're trying to push this heart rate. And by the time they get up to the turnaround, they're absolutely cooked. Sorry, they're trying to push this power. And by the time they get up to the turnaround, they're absolutely cooked. The core temperature's up and they have to pretty much coast back because the only way to drop your core temperature, which sure. you know, once yep. it gets that high, is to stop really and cool down. Um and and I've had the same sort of pushback from people. It's like, well, power's the best way to go, you know, on particularly on a flat course. But um, I, I don't think so. And I think if you're going to use those, it's a triangulation. It's got to be, you know, okay, power. But you've got to look at heart rate, and you've got to you've got to listen to how your body's what, to what, what your body's telling you and how it's feeling as well. Yep. Mm, very interesting. Do you stride, stride, um, with you, you know, with your stuff, with your running? Yeah. I've got so I've got a cheeky story about them too. Um, you know, they're they they kind of started their company up in Boulder, Colorado. And I I remember when some of their first commercial products were coming off of the line. I actually went up there to, you know, say hi to them and you know, pick up a few that I had ordered because I wanted to, you know, because I wanted to test with that uh with athletes. Um but the long and the short, the, the long and the short of it is, is for a trail running athlete, it kind of becomes pretty useless because the surface of the trail is under mm-hmm. kind of constant change. And so if you're trying to determine metabolic power, which is really what stride is trying to do mm-hmm. the uh, movement at the level of the foot and that movement at the level of the foot is not consistent because of the surface, you really can't make heads nor tails out of it. Um, I don't know if I would use it in a road running application as well. Um, because I've always had an issue with the term running power, which is essentially a nonsensical, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a nonsensical yeah. biomechanical, biomechanical term. I mean, I get what they're doing. They're trying to have a, they're trying to have a surrogate for, for metabolic power. And if right out of the gate, that's the way that they started to orient their product. And that was a counsel that I gave them when their product first came out is, is you need to call it what it is instead of, uh, trying to make the analogy to the cycling mm. power meter. But then yeah. that argument apparently apparently fell on deaf ears. But um, certainly in a, in a trail running application, um, even even with very benign surface changes, it kind of it, it becomes a, a useless tool quite quickly. Mm. Um, let, let's rewind a little bit, Jason, to, um, to to that journey into ultra running. When I've looked at your website and, and I've you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there about research around ultra running. Did you start out as a coach and then start looking at the research to try and inform the way you coached and, and be more precise with the information that you were providing to athletes? Or did you start out by researching what was going on in ultra running and then use that in your coaching? Yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate that um, I began my coaching career and I had access to coaches that were way better and way more experienced than I was. Um you know, we have a legacy here at the Olympic Training Center in, in Colorado Springs where uh, where I live. And a lot of the coaches that I was around at that time were somehow involved in cycling, running, you know, triathlon at the Olympic Training Center, as well as the physiologists that we had kind of constant contact with. And through a lot of that early mentorship underneath these coaches that were, you know, way, way better than I was, they were all always challenging me to understand why I was doing what I was doing. 
and that's that's a really cliche thing to 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 say, but they scrutinize the heck out of every single workout that I put on an athlete's training program. If I put a 45 minute recovery run on a program, they would ask me why was it 45 minutes and not 60 minutes and not 30 minutes? Why does mm-hmm. you know why is this precision of this timing actually matter? And I better have had good answers. And a lot of those and a lot of those answers we drew upon the current body of literature to 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 try to justify what we were actually doing to the extent that we actually could. And that worked really well in the traditional endurance sports, cycling, triathlon, and running, because there was a robust body of literature to to pull from in the mid-2000s, the 2010s, and things like that. Well, then when I started working with ultramarathon runners, kind of in the late 2000s, somewhere around there, I, I went through the same process of trying to find literature that was specific to ultramarathon that would just describe the demands of the event, right? Very, you know, very broad, very simplistic kind of first step types of things. What are the demands of the event? What percentage of their VO2 max are they going to run at? You know, what is the, what's the energy utilization? Like those very, very basic things. And there's nothing. In fact, I, I kind of write in my book that the very first year I started coaching, I think there were six research papers that were published in throughout the entire space for a whole year. That had the keywords ultra marathon. And so we had to kind of beg, borrow, and steal best practices from triathlon. Long course triathlon uh, is was provided a big blueprint for us. The Tour de France provided a good blueprint for us to initially start to work with uh, ultra marathon athletes. And it's only been within the past, I would say maybe five or six years, where we have where we're starting to have a robust enough body of literature that is specific to ultra running to where we can start to kind of draw conclusions as to what are best practices. And I'll, I'll give you a great, I'll give the listeners just a great one that has started to emerge really within the, the, the past couple of years. And I think that this really illustrates a, a fundamental compare and contrast between marathon running and ultra marathon running. So everybody's familiar in marathon running that running economy has been this king and queen maker over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nike Breaking Two prog- Project and the Ineos uh, to 159 Project really, really highlighted this because 80% of the efforts of the sports scientists and the physiologists and then Elliot Kipchoge, 80% of the, of the efforts in order to draw down that marathon time under two hours is focused on running economy. They want a flat course. They want something. They want a course that has relatively benign uh, temperatures. The shoe technology, which became very controversial, the kind of the the linchpin of that was improving an athlete's running economy. And the 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 broader marathon base uptook all of that uh, all of that information as well. Everybody started focusing on you know high performance shoes, and they actually they they ended up making a very big difference. So much so that now they have rules, right, around the stack height mm-hmm. uh, of shoes. Well, we go into the ultramarathon world, and it turns out that running economy not only is not the same king and queen maker in the ultramarathon space, but there are also many applications to which you would intentionally want to sacrifice running economy in order to improve performance. So what do I mean by that? So let's think about this a little bit. Trail and ultra runners, they wear heavier shoes, shoes that are more protective, right? They're not wearing the super Ferrari shoes that the marathon runners actually uh, actually wear. They carry around poles, right? Which 
probably impact running economy negatively in some situations and impact running economy positively in other situations. They tend to have higher body masses. They carry around more muscle mass. And the theory is, is that greater muscle mass allows them to handle a lot of the, uh, a lot of the muscular damage that occurs during the course of an ultra marathon. And there are a number of other, of, of other examples to where ultra runners are intentionally, intentionally, deliberately doing things either during training and or during a race that compromise running economy. So you have this fundamental contrast of this very, you know, well-known and long researched uh, and lauded physiological application, which is running economy, in two very different ways that we view its impact on performance from the marathon until the ultra and in, in, into ultra marathon. And it really has only been over the past few years where things like that that are driven by research have really started to illuminate how we can train athletes better in this particular running application that we call that we call ultra marathon running. Wow. That's interesting. And, you know, when you start to think about some of those specific differences, which which I did have questions about, we'll come back to later about where to use poles, types of shoes, strength training and muscle mass, you know, for robustness and resilience. Um, I suppose this comes back to one of those fundamental philosophies of, of training, isn't it? It's about specifics of the sport that you're doing and um, the outcomes that you're after uh, are probably slightly different to marathon running. Yeah, specificity being one of the core components of any training application and then when you look at into from an into uh, in an endurance uh, uh application uh specificity becomes very important in, in in trail running so you have a number of different aspects that you can hone in on specificity the environmental specificity so high altitude the hard the notorious hard rock 100 uh out in silverton colorado which uh uh, takes place at a at an elevation between eleven thousand and fourteen thousand feet for the vast majority of it i think the average elevation is eleven thousand feet um, you know, the bad water 35, which is just literally wrapped up a couple of days ago, occurs in death Valley where the temperatures often, often exceed, you know, 120 degrees, uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, you also have terrain specificity as I was alluding to earlier with the, with the stride power meter. So you have mountainous terrain, you have technical terrain, you have mountainous terrain that's non-technical or technical <laughs> uh, the Western States 100 just uh, happened to conclude, and there was a big section of snow that the runners had to traverse, and it and it took a lot of the elite runners out of the race that didn't have that particular uh, very mm -hmm. specific skill set. And so, I do think that a lot of the a lot of the effort in managing ultra marathon performance is managing the specific characteristics of the race, of which there are many. And, you know, once again, we have a robot, we have a robust body of experience to draw upon to kind of hone in on what those specific elements are. And it does make, you know, make no doubt about it. It does make a difference. That's why we have mm -hmm. athletes traveling all over the world to kind of get on the specific courses in advance of their races, because they realize that that course specific, whatever course specific adaptations that they want to, that they want to develop with the best the best opportunity that they have to do that is by actually getting out on the courses themselves i'll give you a very simple example of, of uh, an event in the uk it's called the lakeland 50 i don't know if you've heard of that it's, yep. it's run by a yep. friend of mine mark mark, uh, mm -hmm. mark lathwaite uh, another friend of ours um steve lumley he's a triathlete triathlete for many years he's a coach he's in his late 50s he, he his sister died of cancer in during lockdown and 
he decided to do something significant to raise money. So he entered one of Mark's races. So we had a com- we had a conversation for the podcast about how Steve was going to be adjusting his training from all the triathlon stuff he'd done over the years to preparing for this. And Mark said, Steve, you're going to have to get used to walking with poles. Yeah. And you're going to have to get used to running downhill, you know, because your legs are going to be toast if you don't get used to the impact, of those eccentric, eccentric contractions. If, if you're not used to that, you'll be, you know, you'll be just shuffling along like an old man before the end. Um, he said, it doesn't matter how fit you are. You need those two or three considerations in your training. Otherwise, y- your race is going to be a nightmare. And and that, that you know, I don't think Steve had really considered those those three aspects um, in as much detail as Mark laid out for him. Um, and hopefully, because his race is coming up in a few weeks, he's put those into practice, uh, as well as yeah, going but- up to have a look at going up to have a look at the course and and find out for himself exactly what it's like. Yeah, two two of the of the what i would call like the the hero specifics right that i commonly prescribe for athletes is the percentage of hiking versus running that they're doing within their training and trying mm-hmm. to line up line that up as closely as possible is what they're going to experience during the race you know there are a lot of races mm-hmm. that are 80 percent hiking right and if you're spending 100 percent of your time running you then have a glaring mismatch in the locomotive specificity of your training versus your, uh, versus your, uh, racing. So that's the first one. And then the elevation gain, elevation loss per unit distance. So you can look at the race and say, it's got X, you know, thousand meters of climbing over, you know, X distance, figure out what that ratio is. And we try to match that up as closely as possible, uh, uh, in, in the, in the training environments, specifically the last maybe eight to 12 weeks. Uh, leading up into the race. And I feel that if athletes kind of hit those two things, they're going to get 90% of the way there. You hit the, you know, you, 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 you hit the general run to walk ratio, and then you hit the climbing and descending ratio per unit distance. You get those two elements of specificity down. You're, you're doing a pretty good job. The, the final thing to, to do there would just to be, to get out on the course. And some people have that accessibility and some people don't. Yeah, I've talked with a lot of triathletes about the benefits of uh, of trying a walk-run strategy, particularly with the older athletes. And there's a lot of resistance. People say, well, it's a run. You know, I'm supposed to run. It's not a walk. So what I'll do is I'll run until I can't run anymore, and then I'll walk. But by the time you get to that point, they're, they're really just ambling along or shuffling. They're not moving at any speed. And I think going back to your point there about the locomotive specifics, walking and walking fast is trainable. And most people don't train at doing that. They they walk slowly in between repetitions or when they're walking for the bus or the train. They don't teach their body how to move across the ground while walking at a decent lick. Um, yeah, and, and it's yeah. very different. Yeah, I mean, we walking is a form of locomotion, and we can draw upon the biomechanics uh, literature for this. People will choose to walk at a speed at the lowest uh, at the lowest cost of transport. So whatever speed elicits the least amount of kilojoules over a certain distance, that is the preferred that is the preferred walking speed. And it's about 18 minute miles, right? If you want to kind of correlate it into into uh, running terms, 2.2, meters per per second for the biomechanics nerds that are out there. Um, however, when you're doing it during a race, you're locomoting much faster. And it's awkward, right? I mean, we've all seen people who are trying to walk faster than their natural walking speed. 
and um uh, and and it does look quite and it does look quite awkward but you need to look no further than the olympic level race walkers to realize that it is a trainable skill now endurance athletes triathletes and, and and trail runners probably don't need that level of proficiency right race walking level of proficiency but it does behoove them just like any other skills to develop especially mm-hmm. a locomotion skill it does behoove them to 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 develop it because not only can you physically locomote a lot faster by training it, but at certain speeds, it's going to take less of a toll on your body simply because a, you've trained the biomechanics and you've changed, trained, trained the, 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 all of the biomechanical systems, the muscular system, ligament system, things like that. But in, but in addition to that, you just, you're just more comfortable while you're out there at those speeds and you're not having to like force the issue so much. It's the same thing as running at a certain race pace, right? You get comfortable running at that, at that race pace from a biomechanical standpoint. It's the same thing walking, but most people won't give it enough credit because it, to your point earlier, it's walking, right? Not running. There's also that thing about running across terrain, not, not the fell running terrain that we talked about earlier, where you're basically going across a field full of little clumps of grass and sort of just, just lightly bounding from one to the other like a gazelle. But when you're running along a rocky track, I've noticed that some people just seem to, even without any effort, they just seem to open up a gap because they're just very confident and comfortable with being on that surface. And then I look at people who are only used to running on the pavement um, they're not as confident and they're having to watch where they put every foot and their uh, every footstep and they're just they're just not using their biomechanics efficiently and so they they're actually slowing down particularly when they're going downhill um yeah so uh, again that's that's down to training on specific terrain isn't it that you're going to find in the event yeah and this is I, I still think that this is an open question in trail running is how do you become more proficient across technical terrain um, you'll see some people that prescribe certain drills to to increase that technical proficiency. And there may or may not be merit to those types of things. You can think about your classic agility drills that you might see a team sports player do, football player, soccer player, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not I'm I am of the mindset that simply training on the terrain is the best conduit to becoming proficient across technical terrain. And if you want to increase your technical proficiency and or your speed across technical terrain, the better way to do that is to learn how to run on more technical terrain. So not necessarily faster over medium technical terrain, but you increase your skill from challenging the skill component of it in the, in the field on technical, on technical types of trails. That's the way that I've typically developed it with athletes. And we actually set aside phases to work on it. I mean, if I have an athlete that I know has a deficiency over technical terrain, it will be a component, a very specific component of one of the training phases, typically earlier in the year where the training kind of load isn't as high. And the prescription, you know, isn't really that much more complicated than to go find the most technical trails that you have and just run them over and over and over and over. And let's just Mm -hmm. get better at them. I'd apply the same principles when I was um, prescribing gravel bike riding or mountain bike riding to folks. It's just just get out there onto technical trails and learn and build your confidence at taking these corners and you know being on different surfaces and learning how to balance your bike because it's again it's like the difference between trail running and road running. It's it's so much different to riding your bike on tarmac, yep. Yep. Um, and and the only way to get better at it is not on Zwift. 
uh, it's out there getting <laughs> dirty and, and occasionally and occasionally falling off. Um, <laughs> Jason, you you were. I just wanted to go back and, and ask you a question about that um, time that when you started out at the US Olympic Center. You said you're working with a lot of uh, really experienced coaches who would be dr- grilling you on your prescription of particular sessions. I recall listening to Bill Sweetnam. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was, he's a swim coach, high-level swim coach in Australia who was um, director of performance for British Swimming. And he used to have all of his coaching staff, physiotherapists, strength trainers, nutritionists, run a session for the swimmers. And he would then ask them, well, why did you choose that warm-up? What made you choose that cluster of repetitions? Why did you choose that intensity? And he said, I'm, I'm actually, there isn't a right way to do this, but what I'm really looking for is the confidence in standing behind your decision and then reflecting on it afterwards. So you mentioned a specific example where you, you might have chosen a 45-minute recovery run and they were saying, well, why did you choose that instead of 30 minutes or 60 minutes? If you were able to confidently say, I chose it for this reason because this is what I wanted to elicit, this was the intention, but I'm going to reflect on it afterwards and find out whether it did really hit my hit the goal would would they have been comfortable with that because it was part of your learning experience or would they have wanted you to change it before you executed well the the exercise was to think about what you're actually applying and so coaching tends to be a profession where we draw we draw our professional practice or the way that our perfection professional practice actually comes to light in this realistic format where we're actually working with athletes we we tend to draw on our own experiences that drive most of that process and so i was i was a collegiate runner right a lot of running coaches were runners at you know somewhat competitive runners at some point in their lives and they all they did a 4 mile recovery run it was always 4 miles why well because the road combination of you know, whatever they had around to them was four miles all the time. So they prescribed four mile recovery runs for their, for their athletes based on, based solely on their experience. And the point with the more senior level coaches that I was always around was, Mm -hmm. it was a little bit akin to what you were just mentioning. It wasn't necessary. They didn't expect me to have the right answer from the get go, but they did expect me to be deliberate about what I was actually doing and not just drawing upon my own experiences to, uh, to mm-hmm. that, that I was then translating that into athletes. And if I could use this opportunity to kind of stand on a soapbox for just a little bit, we do have yeah. a huge problem with that in, in trail and ultra running where a lot of the, where, where much of the coaching community draws too much on their own mm-hmm. experiences to inform their athletes. And, I, I get it. Some of that is, is because, yeah, it's an emerging sport and there is, you know, there's not as robust of a body of literature to, uh, to, to, to draw from, but there's still no excuse for that. And if anything, it needs to be the opposite because whenever the sport as the, as the, like the degree of complication increases within any one particular sport, it puts a heightened focus on another component of training, which is individualization. Everybody's going to act, react highly individualized to temperature, heat, terrain, technical things, uh, nutrition situations and things like that. And it's because of that, that we need to be drawing less on our own experiences and more on what we're actually seeing right in front of us. So how's the athlete actually yeah. reacting to the training? How are they actually reacting to the train? How are they reacting to the environment? How are they reacting to the nutri- to the nutrition plan? That component of individualization, I've always felt that in any endurance application, 
the longer, the harder, the more arduous, the more complicated the the event that the athlete is training for, the higher degree of ind- the, or the more pressure, I guess, is what I would say. The more pressure the coach has to highly individualize what they are doing for mm-hmm. any one single person. And this is why you can get away with static programming for the 5K. You put you put 100 people on a static program for a 5K, they're they're all going to do okay. You put them on a static yeah. program for a 10K, they're going to do okay. You put them on a static program for a marathon, man, it might start to break down. You do it for an ultra marathon, that's when it really starts to show the flaws and the cracks and things like that. You put people on a static program for a 100-mile ultra marathon, and few people are going to succeed off of that. You put people on a static program for a 200-mile ultra marathon uh, program, mm-hmm few people are going to succeed with that. So it highlights this individualization component that I think that, you know, this is what a lot of the, a lot of my coaching background was really trying to emphasize with me that you always had to have a purpose that was drilling down to why you would do that for an individual. I think I recognize those same um, issues and problems within triathlon. Certainly at Ironman, there's there's an awful lot of coaches that have done really well. There's an awful lot of athletes that choose coaches because the athlete's been, because the coach has been successful as an athlete, not because they've um, developed a pedigree as a coach. And the coach then, um, and I've heard some of these coaches talk and say, well, I just give them what I did and cut it all in half. Right. So, (laughs) you know, they pay you a lot of money because of your name and and, and, and you're really doing them a disservice. That's very disrespectful, but it's also not recognizing that you know, that individual might have four kids and be working 60 hours a week in order to feed them all and has got a lot of stress in his life and can't manage that sort of work. And uh, Or maybe he can, but it unravels after a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, trust me, so though. I, here, let, me get, let me give you the perspective here. Y'all are still ahead of the game, though, because you use the most sophisticated tools. I'm still trying to convince coaches in the trial and ultramarathon world to stop using spreadsheets. Like start really? using something wow. where, oh uh, yeah, yeah, really, right? That's the that's the correct response to that. And once again, I kind of lean on my background working with cyclists mm-hmm. and working with triathletes and trying to individualize the prescription mm-hmm. for those athletes based on what I was seeing in the data. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine trying to do that based off of just a spreadsheet or maybe you look at the Strava data. Like it's just, it's, com- it's completely mm-hmm. asinine. So, you know, we, we've still got a ways to go in practice. And I say that with all due respect to the ultramarathon coach practitioners out there, there are a number of very, of, of very good ones that know how to analyze files and know how to individualize training and things like that. But it still is very emerging and uh, uh, still at the point to where there are practitioners out there that are copy pasting from one athlete to the next, copy pasting what they did using you know, spreadsheets to quote unquote analyze, to, to prescribe training. There's no way that you can actually analyze it, uh, in a spreadsheet in that fashion. And that'll eventually change as the sport gets more sophisticated. But, um, um, uh, current, 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 uh, use case to date is certainly not what you see. And it's not to the sophistication that you see in the triathlon and certainly not in the cycling world as well. Mm. Wow. That's been, been an interesting start, Jason, talking about coaching philosophy and, uh, and everything. So thank you for sharing those with me. I had some uh, I had some more formal questions. You, you uh, touched on VO2 max there. And um, one of the things I was interested in is what, what are the physiological determinants of, of good ultra runners? You know, how, how much importance is put on um, VO2 max? How much is it on, you know, fat utilization? And how much is it is just mindset? You know, and being able to just guts it out um, over a, over 100 kilometers. 
Yeah. I mean, once again, this is, this is emerging and actually one of my, uh, coaching colleagues, uh, did a lot of research, uh, in this area, trying to come up with what physiological variables correlate the highest with performance. And it turns out that VO2 max is the, the kind of the, the king and queen maker there. And as I mentioned earlier, running economy is not so much of a king and queen maker in terms of how it correlates or doesn't correlate to performance in, in the ultra marathon world. That being, that being said, we can only correlate what we can actually study. And there is, we have by no means kind of exhausted all of these variables, uh, out there. But the, the one thing that I will, the, the one kind of like common thread that I will pull that, I, that I'll, that I'll pull on is that it takes a little bit of everything to be extremely successful in the sport, it takes very good physiology. It takes a lot of good training. It takes solid nutrition where they can absorb a lot of carbohydrates and, and oxidize a lot of fat at the same time. It takes an impeccable mindset. You, it, it, this, the sport is becoming competitive enough to where you have to have all of those variables at play to, 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 to really be successful. And I don't know if we're ever going to have, Hey, these are the top five things to focus on or, or, or kind of anything like that. I, I think the sport is just so inevitably complicated that trying to drill it down to something very simplistic like that, it kind of does it a disservice. It kind of does the arduous nature and the complicated nature mm-hmm. of the sport where you're having to, you know, battle the environment and different, you know, trail conditions and things and things like that, boiling it down to just a few things that are really important. Um, uh, I, I think, I think does the, does the, it, it just does the effort a little bit of an injustice. Um, so yeah, I don't know what to tell you in terms of what is going to be the most impactful, right? Mm-hmm. But my opinion is, is currently it takes a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm just thinking that there might be somebody listening to this conversation thinking, ah, so VO2 max is the most, you know, the biggest variable that correlates with performance. So therefore I need to be working on improving my vo2 max hold on a minute let's have a look in the in the in the uh in the training books you have vo2 max high intensity intervals you know some hit sessions um and and i'm thinking that they might be going off on their own tangent there um particularly when we come back to what you just said about it requires a little bit of everything um and bearing in mind that the majority of the listeners here won't be won't probably be going for a a top position um but more as a physical, you know, and mental challenge for them to, you know, see if they could actually get across 100k um, on rough terrain. Um, is is there any place for VO2 max in their in their training makeup? And if so, what type of training would would they be doing? Yeah, so 100% there is, um, and that's a big cornerstone of a lot of the training that I do with athletes. Is we're trying to maximize the the output of the aerobic engine using every tool possible volume, intensity, you know, combinations of that. So absolutely, I put it in there. One of the unique um, pieces of ultramarathon, when you compare it to triathlon, it's somewhat similar to this, maybe not so much at the elite level, but at like the participatory level where you've got, you know, 12 hour finishers, 15 hour finishers for a long course, uh, for a long course triathlon to where you're racing at a lower intensity than you are training. Ultramarathon, that is almost always the case. There are very, very rare exceptions of that. 
And so because of that, this periodization scheme starts to emerge to where you start out. Well, let me kind of like back up a little bit. When I design periodization schemes for any athlete, one strategy kind of percolates up to the top. And that's to start with the intensity that is the least applicable to the end goal and gradually move towards Mm -hmm. the intensities that are the most applicable to the end goal. And you can use that with 10K athlete, marathon athlete, ultramarathon athlete. The the intensities that are least applicable and most applicable obviously change, but philosophy can 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 kind of remain true across a, a, a really wide variety of endurance athletes. And so in an ultramarathon application, what that what that practically manifests itself into is that early in the season, when you're far away from the race, 12 months out, 10 months out, nine months out, you're doing very low volume and very high intensity, your classic VO2 max types of activities. And then as you draw closer to the race, that intensity goes down, the volume of intensity goes up, and the overall volume goes up to where you're running basically at an endurance intensity the entire time. I mean, let's not, you know, let's not kid ourselves. 100 kilometer or 100 mile ultramarathon, uh, you're typically running at an endurance or a recovery uh, ty- uh, type of intensity. But there is absolutely room for this high end VO2 max work to kind of answer your question. And the the place for that is 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 early in the season for most athletes. Yeah, the, in in triathlon, there's a there's a trend towards that. Quite rightly, I think it's called. A lot of people call it reverse periodization um, because it's the opposite way around. But it's not reverse periodization. Yeah, really, it's just perfect periodization for that particular sport. And yeah. I, I do, you know, I've, I've, as a strength coach, I've, I've spent time listening to a lot of the the great. Eastern European coaches talking about periodization, and you know, I think I think it, uh, there's a there's always a lot gets lost in translation across from strength sports where there's a very and, and team sports where there's a very particular goal to endurance sports and particularly triathlon where you've got all sorts of things going on. That that whole periodization thing is um, is completely different, and so uh, you, you know that what you're talking about there is not really reverse periodization. It's just ideal for that particular event, isn't it? And it and it logically it makes sense to do the the training that's most relevant back to the specificity thing closest to the race and the stuff that's least relevant furthest away from the race. And so if they were doing VO2 max training, would you have folks doing that on the track or would you send them to do it on the terrain that they were mm. going to be running on? So, you know, near me, I've got some woods with some very steep hills and it'll probably take you a minute to two minutes to get to the top. And that's going to be a really, really intense VO2 max session. But also on the way down, there's an opportunity to practice descending on the terrain you're going to be racing on perhaps so opportunity to till, kill two birds with one stone yeah I, I tend to favor doing them in an uphill condition and and mm-hmm. it, here's why there's two two facets of this first off speed is very rarely a limiting factor in an ultra marathon um mm-hmm. great, yeah, yeah so I'll give you a great example um kid from the uk tom evans shout out to tom recently won mm-hmm. the western states 100 his fastest mile was just a hair over six, uh, six minutes, uh, a mile during a downhill section for that entire race. His marathon PR is like two twenty or something like that. So six minute mile is not from a speed perspective. It's not that taxing is not that taxing for him. And so I'm not interested in the speed component of a VO two max interval. I am, I am interested in how much oxygen can we deliver to the muscles, right? That's, part of the that's the a part of the adaptation that we're actually most interested in 
So I tend to do uh, uh, uphill intervals first and foremost because speed is not a limiting factor. Second thing is is it in many athletes, not in all of them, you tend to elicit a more robust cardiopulmonary response. And this is one of the reasons why you'll see a lot of like lactate threshold and VO2 max tests. They increase the grade towards the end of these graded exercise tests so that they can elicit as high of a VO2 peak as possible. They just realize that increasing the treadmill is a better tool than increasing the speed. And so I'm leveraging a little bit of that uh, physiology as well, or a little bit of those fundamentals as well, that typically you can get a little bit of a higher oxygen drive into the muscles that maybe produce a slightly more robust adaptation in an uphill condition. And then I also have this kind of like side bet going on, and I'll fully admit that it's a side bet that you're hedging against injury a little bit by doing the most intense intervals in an uphill condition where the ground reaction forces are not going to be quite as great. Um, so it's for kind of like a combination of all of those reasons where both for the VO2 max intervals and also I'll do this for uh, for it, really across any interval set, to be honest with you, I tend to favor, not exclusively do, but favor doing them in an uphill condition across, let's just say 80% of the total time that I prescribe across all of my athletes, about 80 to 90% of that total time that I prescribe for really any interval is going to be in a, is going to be in an uphill condition. Yeah. As a, as a novice to this, Jason, that, that makes perfect sense to me um, because it's specific and it's utilizing those uphill skills as well. And it's off road. And like you say, there's less injury risk. And also it's, it's more about, I guess, it's more of a strength element uh, rather than that biomechanical element of uh, some people just aren't able to run fast enough to 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 reach the VO two max because they don't have that leg speed. Right, um, and but you can draw on the research here as well. Like even if you introduce a very benign downhill, two or three percent type of downhill, it's impossible to get close to your VO two peak, mm-hmm. and so. If you want to develop VO2 max by getting as close to your VO2 max as possible during a set of intervals, that's the tool that you're using to improve VO2 max. And that's, that's, let's not kid ourselves. That's not the only tool that you can use, but that's the one that we're talking about in this context. You, you want to try to set up the condition as much as possible so that VO2 max is actually robustly tapped into. And the, once again, that, that, the the so then the conclusion to that to that line of logic is that you're doing more of those in an uphill condition because it is eliciting a higher percentage of your vo2 max more of the time when you are running uphill and then like i said you've got this whole host of things the final thing that i think the listeners will be uh interested to and this goes to your anecdote that with your friend that needs to get uh used to the to, to the downhills right all the muscular damage that occurs as a, at a as a function of the downhill running and the eccentric activation of, of the muscles. That's that's a big performance consideration in ultra marathon. It just happens to be that training in an eccentric mode of exercise it takes very little stimulus to produce a robust response. And we've known this for, we've known this for years coming from the strength training uh, perspective. It's known as the repeated bout effect. And in fact, in some textbooks, I actually have some of those textbooks right over my right shoulder here. You'll see the term inoculation effect. Now think about that for a second. Inoculation effect. That means that one, one single bout of exercise offers a protective effect against future bouts of exercise. 
And we've seen this in classic strength and conditioning research where they will do one eccentric, uh, you know, bicep curl, right. Or one eccentric, you know, leg press or something like that. And then they bring them back into the lab two, three, five, six weeks later. And that one bout of exercise is still eliciting some type of protective effect. They've actually tested this in a running condition. And I've had this guy on my podcast. You can bring him on your on your podcast as well. He's actually a, a kind of a pull up aficionado, where he you know just likes to do a whole lot of pu- uh, pull ups. Um, he tested runners in a downhill condition, had them run for just twenty minutes on a pretty steep grade, but a pretty benign pace. Right, it'd be an endurance intensity down a really steep grade. Have them run for twenty minutes, and then come back into the lab six weeks. It was three weeks or six weeks. Oh, man, now you're tapping into my uh, memory banks a little bit uh, too much. I believe it was three weeks. Come back into the lab three weeks later. And that one bout of downhill exercise, 20 minutes, not that much for an endurance athlete. That one bout of 20-minute downhill exercise was enough to still elicit some type of protective effect three weeks down the line with no training in between. And so should everybody run one 20-minute downhill session three weeks before a race? No. No, but that's not what you you should take from this. What you should take from it is that it takes very little stimulus to produce a robust adaptation in a downhill condition. So that's another reason to favor uphill when you're trying to develop the cardiopulmonary system and you're trying to develop just a trail running athlete in general is that you have to realize that for downhill, you don't need as much stimulus to get proficient, right? To have your muscles and your neuromuscular system and things like that be proficient running in the downhill. You do need it in the uphill because it's more of a chronic adaptation, right? But this downhill, the these these adaptations to eccentric, eccentric exercise tend to need very low load and they also tend to be more acute. So it's another kind of wrinkle in this whole system of how we how we coach ultramarathon runners. Yeah. So you, you don't need to be putting in twice a week then as a specific session, I think is what you're saying. I don't think you need to do personally. I don't think you need to do anything more specific than just get on the elevation gain, elevation loss that the course is going to reproduce. Mm-hmm. I don't. I I very rarely will have athletes do specific downhill sessions. In fact, I'm very critical of a lot of the coaches that will do. They'll either have their athletes take the ski lift up and run down, mm-hmm. and or and they'll do repeats of that essentially. And or they'll do very hard, deliberate downhill repeats. I'm I'm very critical of the coaches that do that because I think it runs afoul of this general adaptation principle when we look at how the body adapts very specifically to eccentric exercise. Mm. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's a good example, isn't it, of, of the research versus uh, personal experiences, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, once again, you look at the research, there's really no reason to do a whole lot you can do some but to do a whole lot of emphasis in that downhill condition specifically to 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 condition yourself against muscular damage as a byproduct of eccentric activation of the muscle fibers it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of load to to protect against that okay so we do need some vo2 max work um we need it probably far out from the event i guess you keep little bits in just to keep the top end sort of uh, polished um as you get close to the race but not a lot um what what does the what does the rest of the training look like and and you know, the the typical questions i get from people doing ironman are, are you know i need to do a lot of volume because 
that's what I'm required to do in my race. You know, I need to I need to have some three or four hour runs in there because that's how long I'm going to be out there. Um, but of course, going back to your point about static plans versus a dynamic one, looking at the individual, some folks just don't have the capacity in their weekly schedule to be able to do the volume of training that they think they need to do. Um, in in this instance, for a hundred k ultra race, so it, that that being the case, and also balancing out that, well, how much training do those folks? can they do before they start to run the risk of getting injured because the body just can't cope with it? How, how do they get around that conundrum of I need to prepare my body for being on my feet for X number of hours versus I've only got this limited time to train? Well, there's no substitute for volume, you know, and I, I trust me, I am not the biggest volume monger coach out there. Like I do prescribe high volume, but it, especially if we're comparing to people in the triathlon world where some of the professionals are, training 25 or 30 hours a week, some total of all their training, swim, bike, run, and strength training. Um, I'm not getting nearly that high for a lot of my professional athletes. They might touch, you know, 25 hours in a week or 20 hours in a week or something like that for my professional 100 mile runners, people who do it as a profession, as a living. Um, for most normal people, they're like, as you mentioned, they're time limited, right? They've only got so much kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of time in the day. Um, but I will kind of harp back on one of the things that I mentioned earlier is, is generally in an ultra marathon scheme, you're moving from high intensity, low volume to low intensity, high volume throughout the year. And to, to, to counterpoint something that you just mentioned, I do not sprinkle in little bits of VO2 max work throughout the year. I will do a block and then just leave it alone. I, I do lean on a lot and you see this highlighted in the book as well. I do lean on a lot of block style traditional periodization where it's mm -hmm. one intensity at a time and then you move on to another intensity and then you move on to another intensity and then you go back to the first one. And, and I do feel that in most situations in an ultramarathon application, that tends to be a more effective way of periodizing the periodizing the year as compared to mixed periodization where you're doing, you know, a VO2 max run on Tuesday and then you're doing a tempo run on Thursday and then you're doing a long run on, on, on Saturday I just don't think ultramarathon runners are well well served to kind of develop their physiology in that in that way. Although it's a perfectly plausible uh, plausible way to do it, um, but everybody wants to know what their maximum volume is going to be, right? What is my longest long run going to be? That's that that is by far the most common question that I get through any channel, social media, or my website, or whatever. How long should my longest long run be? And I've been on this campaign of sorts, and I'll continue this campaign on this podcast. I've been on this campaign of sorts to try to 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 try to change people's thinking around this, because it kind of doesn't matter the length of your longest long run. Because let's think about this for a little bit, right? Let's just say that your normal long. I do think everything in hours. I don't prescribe volume by mm -hmm. by distance. I prescribe it by time. Yeah. So let's too. just say your let's just say your longest long run is four hours, right? And you're debating whether or not your longest long run should be five hours or six hours, right? That's the root of the question. What should my longest long run be? Mm -hmm. Well, that's only a difference of about an hour over how many several hundred hours that you were actually training from tip to tail for your event. Mm -hmm. So you're nitpicking this very, very small component of the overall pie. I like to think about it in terms of what is your highest volume week going to be? 
And in the book, yeah. I outline some of these minimum maximums that I think you need to be able to get into in order to be successful at the at ultra distances. And they're very reasonable, six or seven hours per week for a maximum volume week at the 50K distance. You're training for a 50K. If you can get into the six or seven hours a week for a few weeks during your maximum training time, like you're, you can, you can do a, good, a really reasonable 50K at that. You want to run at the hundred mile distance? Maybe that's 10 to 12 hours per week for a maximum week of, for a maximum week of training. Those are all very reasonable numbers, especially coming from the triathlon world. People are going to think about it and they go, man, these guys are freaking weenies. They can't get up to 12, they can't get up to 12 <laughs> hours per week. This all comes down to just what you can manage both from a logistical time perspective, like how much time in the day you have with all the other activities that you're doing. And then also from an injury management perspective, it, it is beneficial, especially for kind of first time ultramarathoners to get out and to do a couple of super that's the the physiology that's elicited because the training time as i was mentioning earlier it's a small percentage of the whole you know if you do an eight hour long run versus a 10 hour long run that's only two hours in the entire context of training but you do learn how to manage yourself on those longer long runs you do learn how to manage your nutrition how to manage your feet how to manage your equipment all those things become, you know, part of this complicated like goulash of performance that we see from the from the ultra marathon perspective. So I'm usually encouraging my athletes to get out on several of those longer long runs throughout the course of any sort of training cycle. Not so much for for the physiology piece of it, but just more from the from a event management perspective. And if you can't do that for whatever reason, time, logistics, kind, kind of whatever, that's fine. You just have to realize that that is going to be an unknown or a big, at least a bigger unknown that you're going to have to encounter on race day. And that's one of the beautiful things about ultra running is that there are always, there's going to always, you're always going to have this gap that exists between your longest long run and your race. Very rarely, and I would say this would probably be a training error, would you have a training activity that exceeds the duration of the race. And sometimes that gap is like, four or five X, right. Of your longest training activity. I mean, you go do a hundred mile race. It could be 30 hours, right. And your longest mm -hmm. long run could be six, right. That's five X mm -hmm. of your longest long run. And so it's this unknown component that I think is part of like, it's part of the magic and the beauty and the intrigue of ultra running in the first place. The fact that you are going so much longer and further than you have in training. And somehow that, it, that just kind of attracts people into the sport. And I, I think it's a cool element. Yeah, and I suppose there's always that question of well, if you if you do do anything of that um, of the same distance or similar distance to the event you're going to do, what what effect is that going to have on your body? Is it going to it's going to compromise a few sessions that are coming up? That's for sure because uh, your legs are going to and your feet are going to take a bit of a battering. Um, are you going to pick up a little niggle? Um, you know, if if you were going to do something of that distance, would it be better to do it as an event and and then use that as sort of some other sort of preparation for? Um, working out your nutrition and logistics and, and that whole energy management thing rather than doing this at a training room. Um, yeah, here, here's a here's a tidbit that I would encourage all the listeners to take to heart because I think this will help people manage any type of endurance training. And it doesn't matter whether they're setting up their own periodization or this more commonly comes up in the context of what happens when I have to when I have to skip a day, either due to injury or logistics or my kid got sick or whatever, 
is that you can only handle so much training over long periods of time. Mm. And if you zoom your training lens out and think about four to six weeks of training, you're only going to be able to handle so much volume. And many times when you can't do a workout because of whatever, the dog ate my homework, whatever excuses is out there, that, that workout does not evaporate into thin air. A lot of times what you can do is you can move that training stress two weeks down the line, three weeks down the line, four weeks down the line, because you can only handle so much volume over long periods of time. And when you have to substitute a day, you get a little bit of a break on one day, you can then replace uh -huh. something that you were kind of like doing down the line. Ultra marathon training, I think we need to, we really need to think about that. We need to think about what we are doing, not only for this week's training, as I was mentioning earlier, 20 hour week, 10 hour week, kind of whatever it is, but what are we doing over the order of a month? And is that going to be an adequate stimulus to, to, to essentially get better and get more prepared for the event? Yeah, I guess if we stretch that out a bit further, we come around to Gordo's thousand day plan, don't we? Like you know, if we're thinking about <laughs> if we're thinking about something over three years, it doesn't matter if you miss tomorrow's training session because it's about what happens over three years and yeah. slowly building up towards that thing. And I, I do think with a lot of folks, and, and this is certainly true in, in triathlon and certainly true in Ironman, is that people come in and think, right, I'm gonna go from here, maybe not a standing start, so it's not couch to Ironman. But it's certainly, I want to do this and I want to achieve this in six months. And the, and the target that they're setting themselves is unrealistic for their fitness history and the time available. But if they gave themselves two or three years to do it, it, it would probably be much more possible. And I guess the there's same would no, be true of ultra running. Yeah. Yeah. There's no greater ergogenic aid than long periods of time. And here, here, here's here's what I mean by that. I know that sounds like some sort of cliche trope. No, I, I, um, I understand what you mean, but. Yeah. No, I, but the listeners should the listeners should really understand this. I've got a very practical example that I think will that will drive home. So, but part of my role at CTS for for many years is I was the director of coaching, which means I was basically responsible for fifty some odd coaches and all of the product that they that, that they delivered. And I undertook this project uh, maybe about a decade ago. That I essentially wanted to find out how good our coaches were. And the way that I got about that, I got around that, as I said, listen, I want you to tell me out of your entire athlete stable, I want you to pick every single athlete or look at every single athlete. Tell me what their FTP was, functional threshold pace or functional threshold power, depending upon the type of athlete. Tell me what it was at the beginning when you first started with them and tell me what it was after 12 months. Just those two endpoints. And we did kind of a whole battery of things kind of behind the scenes as well. And it turns out that over 12 months, our av the average improvement that any of our athletes got was about was about 11 or 12%. That doesn't mean a percent a month, right? But over the course of a year, from tip to tail, they're improving their functional threshold, power or pace, anywhere between 11 and 12%. Let's just call it 10%. Let's just say we we're lying, right? Just call it 10% just to make the math easy. So that means with smart training, you can expect to improve about 10%. And I think if you went around to a group of coaches and they, mm. and you were to ask them across their entire athlete base, what that is, they'd come back with a pretty similar number. You know, maybe, maybe coaches that have a really experienced group, maybe it's five or 6%, right? Maybe with a really inexperienced group, it might be slightly higher, but I, I think that that's a reasonable number over the, over the course of a year. That's not indefinite for a particular athlete. It's not 10% every single year for every single athlete, 
But if you look at a group of athletes over a course of a year for any, you know, well-managed coach, I, I think that that's, that, that's, that, 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 that is a reasonable number. Now let's compare that to any training intervention that you want. Just pick one, a nutrition intervention, an interval intervention, uh, you know, some sort of dietary intervention, the improvements that you're getting are, if you get 1%, you're doing a freaking backflip. If I have a nutrition intervention that makes a 1% performance difference across an athlete, I, I'm going to call that a win. I'm going to spike the football and say that it's the greatest nutrition intervention ever. If I compare, I just happen to have this on my desk right here and I see that you're wearing, wearing a shirt. I'm a fan <laughs> of these guys. So if I, if I, if I think that this precision fuel gel, this hydrogel is going to make a difference as compared to my maltodextrin gel. And that difference is about 1%. That's pretty freaking good. Like the people that make the, the hydrogels, they're going to spike the football based on that 1% difference. And so I come back to the fact that long periods of try time is a 10 X fold improvement than any training intervention that you can think of. All the stuff that we put this hyper focus on, and we should, we should put, you know, a lot of focus on interval design and nutrition and things like that. The improvement that you're going to get from optimizing those still greatly pales in comparison to just giving yourself a long period of time to train 12 months, 24 months, because you're going to improve so much more there than all of these other little things. You can add these little things on top. But if you start out with a long period of time, you're going to get most of most of the most of things right. That reminds me of Steven Siler's hierarchy of uh, yeah. endurance needs taken from Maslow's bottom of the pyramid. First line, frequency and volume. Just if you're just starting out, just train as often as you can with the training you've got and focus on just getting the volume and don't worry about intensity. And if you're going to add some intensity, just do a little bit sprinkling here and there when you get the chance. And then if you want to be a bit more specific, add some a session of high intensity intervals. And if you can do those three consistently over a few months, those are going to get you 90% of the way to the result you want. All of those other little things, like you just mentioned there, Jason, yes, they are beneficial, but they aren't going to do as much for you as those bottom three. Yeah, 100%. And, and once again, if, if you have that context, I think that knowing that context, it can drive a lot of behavior. And the coaches out there that are listening to this will identify with this immediately. You have an athlete, I have a race in four months. Can you get me ready? Yeah, but you should have came to me four months before this, or maybe even six months before this in order to get really ready. Sure, sure, we can help. Like, absolutely. Let's figure out what we can do in that short period of time. But if you give yourself long periods of time to do things, that is that is your biggest ergogenic aid. That's the best friend that you can put in your corner is just time. Thank you again to Jason for being my guest on the show this week. Part two will be out in seven days time. And in that episode, we'll be covering topics such as strength training for ultra runners, how to train for an ultra if you live in the city, essential equipment, and much more. To make sure that you don't miss that episode or any others, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and click the subscribe button. And while you're there, and if you've got the time, I'd love it if you can leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please keep in mind also our partnership with Precision Fuel and Hydration, which we announced recently and which gets you a 15% discount on your first order just for being a listener of the podcast. 
Going forward, your regularly here CEO, Andy Blow, or one of his colleagues on the show, sharing some of their latest insights or answering your questions. And on this last point, if you do have a sports nutrition question that you would like answered, please send it in to me via beth at the triathloncoach.com and we'll get back to you with an answer. And the best of these will also be aired on this show. For all of those items I mentioned above, please make sure you check out our show notes for links. That's all for this week. So I'll see you again with Jason on the next episode in seven days time.